there's an awful lot of potential in the practice for the centeredness, for mm. the calmness, mm. for clarity. Mm. And particularly if, and I think this is what happens, if you've resolved a lot of the other issues, you only pick up the ones you haven't resolved. Mm. So for me, the most obvious one I hadn't resolved was a physical one. Mm. I wanted a physical form. I'd sorted my ethical decisions. I'd mm-hmm. sorted my worldview. I'd sorted my idea of what equanimity was like. Mm. Now, the practice can help with all those things, which is even better than it just being physical. Mm. Some people are going to be looking for whole answers. Mm-hmm. Other people are going to be looking for things that are complementary yeah. with the answers they already have. Absolutely. And the fantastic thing with it is you can make use of as much as you need mm. to either finish off what you've started or do something completely new. I'm here today with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good. I'm also here with a very special guest, Youngblood. How are you, Youngblood? I'm very well. How are you? I'm, I'm doing very well. Very good. Yeah. So I suppose today, being that uh, you're uh, David's yoga teacher, mm. I suppose we're going to focus today on, on yoga. Yeah. It's very interesting today where David, the, the dynamic has changed. David is the student today. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of cool. <laughs> it's actually the nice thing about being a teacher who is also a student. Mm-hmm makes you remember to be a good student and a good teacher, hopefully Mm -hmm. by some weird combo. Yeah. (laughs) I thought a fun place to start would be, yes, audience Youngblood's name is really Youngblood and it's very cool. (laughs) So don't wonder if it's a pseudonym, it's not. A lot of people think it's a a name I gave myself because I'm doing yoga. A lot of people do, they give themselves yoga names, but no, I've had this since birth and it's uh, been an interesting ride. Well, there you go. So there we were this morning on the way down talking about free will versus choice. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, you know, you got no free will about your name, but did you make a choice to embrace it? I ch- eventually I did, yeah. Uh, I, I, I thought I was going to make a choice to change it when I was younger and I couldn't handle it, but then as I grew into it, I thought, well, I'll choose to keep it. And now, I've could, earned it now. could we imagine young blood not being young blood? No. I'd say as a student, no. <laughs> it's just so cool to say, my teacher is young blood. It's, it's a fun name to introduce myself with. It's a conversation starter. The problem is it's difficult sometimes for me to remember other people's names because we They're get just talking not about cool. mine. <laughs> We get talking about mine and then I think, I don't remember what this person's name is. I've been talking about mine the whole time. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into yoga or should we start with how we met and let that unfold from there? What yeah. would you like to do? Well, I, to me, it's such a, um, a marked point in my memory of meeting you because it, it, it presented such an immediate and exciting challenge because you were so definite about what you wanted to do. So to, I guess to set the scene, we've moved a couple of times. Our yoga space has moved a couple of times in the last few years. And at the previous space, we had a shop part, which had yoga supplies and things like that. And then we had the studio part, the shala part, which sat out the back. And uh, one day, David and his partner, Karen, came in and immediately there was uh, a conversation around uh, the difference between taking a group class versus a private class, and we almost well, within within minutes veered towards this is going to this is going to be much better if we do this as private classes, and that became then a conversation about 
how would we do it? And have you ever worked with someone with any sort of impairment before? And it was just uh, such an exciting, I don't, I think I might've been more excited than you were. It was such an exciting, fun, new challenge for me to get the opportunity to work with someone in a completely different capacity. I think that's what was so good about it is, you know, to give the audience context. My wife had started Ashtanga with Youngblood mm. you know, group classes a couple of months before and was getting fitter and really enjoying it. I'm like, mm. right, a physical discipline where the whole thing exists on the mat, I could go anywhere in the world and the primary series is going to be exactly mm -hmm. the same. No one can futz it up. Mm -hmm. There is only the primary series yes. when you're in the primary series. Yeah. So the whole world's on the mat, primary series. I think, okay, you know, Karen really finds you know, listening to Youngblood and following the instructions very clear and easy. I go, well, that's a really good sign. I've got someone who you know, I'm used to communicating with, who says he's a good communicator. Mm. So on Saturday morning we go in, and again, I've got no real idea what to expect. And it's like, here's this super articulate, curious person who seems as excited about teaching me as I am excited to get started. Mm. So it was like this weird little excitement mm. fest, mm. even though we weren't quite sure what we were excited about. No, we just knew it was going to be interesting and fun. I think that was it. Immediately we clicked and I knew it was going to be a fun time. So we talked about the logistics of how it would work and how often we would meet. We were meeting, I think, three times a week. Yeah, the to get time. the basic stuff yeah, in yeah. to make sure it's stuck. Yeah, for a few weeks at least, for a few months, I'd say. Yeah, I think it was at least the first two or three, yeah. just to make sure that the core stuff. So this is a thing I had to make the decision to everything Youngblood teaches me, I have to remember. Mm -hmm. you know, now Youngblood and I have a lesson every week, so I have to remember anything he's tweaked and be able to replicate it mm -hmm. for the next five practices until I see him again, or what was the point of the lesson? Mm. So when I you know, give the audience a general hard time about get some more discipline, mm -hmm. I'm my own example of why. Yeah. He's walking the walk. You know, if you try and teach me you know, a new posture or a new way to do something, I don't want to have to bug you next week for more than mm. clarification mm. on one component of 10 things I've remembered. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I'm being slack. Mm -hmm. And some things, of course, are going to fall by the wayside, but it's interesting because of the discipline and the dailiness, I think, of the practice, and it is designed to be a daily practice. Mm. If you just stick with it, you almost don't have to think as much about it uh, as just allow yourself to keep practicing that change and exactly. then that change takes over, which is nice, which is then back to a lot of our conversations, which are always about doing. That yeah. It's not enough just to think about it. You've got to actually do it or you won't remember it. And that's the critical thing is that, you know, you would ask me each week, okay, how many times have you practiced this mm -hmm. week? And as the weeks went on, it was consistently, mm -hmm. you know, I've done my five practices since I've seen you yeah. last. Yeah, because with Ashtanga, people practice six days a week. You always have a day off. Yeah. Otherwise, your body's just going to get so raw. Mm. And all right, there's the week where I miss one. So second semester last year where you know, I was missing Tuesdays because the lecture was at 8 a.m. But you're know, making it up on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. So I was still getting my six practices yeah. just by turning the world inside out. Yeah. Which was weird because Sunday's day off day. Right. Not Tuesday's Body day knows. Day. Yeah. Where I was like, no, this is just wrong. Mm. Tuesday's, you know, it's eight in the morning. I should mm. have practiced by now. Mm. So from my experience of the first lesson, I was wrapped from day one that you could articulate what I needed to do, you know, that you're such a good wordsmith. Do you want to explain to the audience a bit where being such a good wordsmith comes from? Yeah, I guess from a couple of places. I mean, I, I grew up in a <clears throat> in a household while, where I was really encouraged to uh, speak up, always to speak up. And that then, of course, led into a real interest in communication and communication led to an interest in sort of more widespread communication uh, and not just for 
clarity of information, but also in terms of elements of motivation. So that got me into a world of advertising, and I was a copywriter for quite a while, uh, which I really enjoyed. I didn't love the business side of things, but I loved the craft side of things. Uh, and that led then into really wanting to express not only words on paper, but also words with my with my speech and communication of ideas and stories and that sort of thing, which led then into acting and taking courses in acting and things like that. And, and then, of course, somewhere along that journey, yoga really took over, and I realized that the communication skills I developed along the way and my need to be heard and my need to be uh, heard clearly. The conventions, especially around acting, were always good. Can we be seen? Can we be heard? And here I knew I couldn't be seen, but I knew that if I really was specific about it, then it didn't really matter because what I was saying would be taken. Then uh, that led into the way I started teaching with my yoga. And I like to think that when I'm teaching, whether it's with David or someone else, that if they can follow the verbal instruction, they don't have to exit the posture in order to see what I'm doing. I'd prefer them not have to look at me. I'd prefer that I could not even be moving for that matter, but they could just hear what I'm saying and move according to that. So very clear about directions and articulation of different parts of the body and naming those parts in easy to understand language where they don't have to filter through and say, well, what's a what's a posterior deltoid i can just say move the back of your arm and that's mm-hmm. enough that's enough and so it's it's um and we've talked about this before there's a difference between uh the learning behaviors and the teaching behaviors and mm-hmm. if i can do more of the work as the teacher they do less work as the learner and mm-hmm. yet the information gets in so that's that trick about you know any good teacher make sure their students are excited and absorbing but not actually thinking too hard mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it kind of just you know water going down the gully yeah into the student yeah and that that works infinitely better. If you keep putting barriers up that they have to clear, mm. they suddenly don't care what, mm. what they should be learning. They're busy trying to get through the process rather yeah. than learn. Yeah. So, so yeah, part of the wonderful thing with your voice too is I don't know where along the way you learned to do it, but being able to breathe loud enough mm-hmm. that everyone knows what they should be doing with their breathing at that <laughs> right. moment. Yes. Like you know, a cool version of breathing, you know, no Darth Vader. Right. But to be able to be loud and clear enough about whether you should be breathing in mm-hmm. or breathing out. Mm-hmm. And then pitching every word you say so it doesn't then disrupt the sequence of knowing where the breathing should yes, be. Yes, yes. It's, it's there's a, an awful lot going on it's in a, There's a lot happening, yeah, which of course had to develop over time. But mm. now when I do it, it feels like music. It feels like, I don't know what it even is. It's, it's, a, it's a pattern or it's a style or it's a, it's a, a conversation. A rhythm, right? It's a rhythm. It's a mm. rhythm. And... If I don't breathe, I can't teach. If I don't breathe and feel the breath of the room around me or the people around me, and usually we'll find a common breath pretty easily, and that can happen through a number of different ways. When it's one-on-one, I'm following David's breath, so I'll match my breath to his breath as we're moving. When it's a group, oftentimes people will be a little louder, some people a little louder, some people a little quieter, and the people who are a little louder tend to set the tone of the breath in terms of the rhythm of the breath, and without necessarily realizing it, people have started to join in with that. So this becomes this average sort of length of breath, Um, and so it will be counting while speaking. So inhale and lifting the chest up and looking up towards the fingertips and then exhale and fold forward and take your hands all the way down to the floor tuck your nose in towards your chin inhale and looking up three you know different things like that and and fitting as much information or as little information in as i need to depending on what i'm seeing going on around me and sometimes i'll scale it right back and just inhale exhale but at the beginning there's often a lot of information um and trying not to let those things conflict so that someone's not trying to do 10 things at once they're doing one, then the next, then the next, then the next, just in quick succession. Because mm, part of the irony is 
you know, when it's you and I working together one on one, sometimes it can be ten minutes and you don't need to say anything. Right. Right. I'm like, ha. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got this bit which as is right nice. as it's currently going yes. to be. Yes. Nothing's out of shape, nothing's out of whack exactly. timing wise. Yes. And there's gonna be relative peace in the universe on this bit of my practice for yeah. a while. Yeah, which is nice. I, I think there's this this need for feedback and some students need it more some students need it less but there's a there's a, a western perhaps need for feedback the good student is the one that asks a lot of questions in the in the eastern philosophies the good student is the one that shuts up and follows the orders basically and so i think the balance is somewhere in the middle there and i think what it's about is trust mm. that if something needs to be said it will be said and you don't have to keep looking over your shoulder to check that mom and mom and papa are still watching you you know do your cool thing and I think this is a really important thing for me where I am a natural questioner mm. just because, again, can't see the world, got to ask a million mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. But this has been a wonderful thing about the yoga practice is learning to shut up and do it. Mm-hmm. Like if you've got a question about something, you're not sure how to do it right, yeah. ask. Yeah. But any question more complicated than that can wait until after mm-hmm. or you're not going to concentrate on doing what you're doing yeah. properly. So for people who think too much like me, a good physical practice is actually a way to say, brain, shut mm-hmm. up. Let the body do its thing. Yeah. Actually pay attention to it doing its thing. Yeah. Be present physically. For me, being present intellectually is just nonstop. Mm-hmm. But being present physically is actually a novelty still. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice couple of hours off from thinking. Absolutely. And a lot of people think they have to be able to understand something before they can do it. No. And this practice is the opposite. You need to do it in order to understand it. Would you like to explain a little bit of the short history? My short way of describing it to people is that essentially it's a lot of very old yoga refound and put together yeah. in a very solid form where you're not allowed to manipulate it you just have to do the work mm. and if you get stuck you stay stuck yes exactly so the ashtanga system is just that it's a set system that over the years has developed as you would imagine different um teachers uh, over the years have continued to explore and investigate different ways of doing the practice and so even someone who studied ashtanga yoga 30 years ago if that's when they studied and they haven't changed anything from then it will look quite similar probably 90 percent the same but there will be some variations in terms of what's done now when our uh, guru passed away uh, a few years ago now the practice sort of crystallized at that point because he was then gone and he was no longer developing it. So his grandson took over and his grandson had been working with him for years. And so everyone just naturally took them, took him on as their guru. And he uh, he hasn't changed anything. He's kept everything exactly as it was when his grandfather passed away, which I think partly is to do with respect, but it's also because he was the one who spent a lifetime modifying and changing so some postures have fallen away some variations of postures have been reintroduced uh, along the way but once he passed away that was it and so the practice that uh, david's been doing is i guess the most modern version the most up-to-date version of the practice and and that's the one i practice as well and that's what i teach to everyone and it is it is designed to give you exactly what you need in terms of moving and stretching and strengthening and connecting the different parts of the body without overexerting. There used to be a something called full vinyasa. Full vinyasa just means, vinyasa means breath to movement system. And there used to be um, a return to a standing position, even between the seated postures. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> and it adds a lot of extra time. Well, there's an understanding that the people who are doing practice nowadays are householders. That's the part of your life you're usually in when you're practicing. Um, and that you have things to do. 
you know, you've got jobs to go to, you've got kids to look after, you've got things you have to do. So there's there's not this, you know, indefinite period of time where you're in the forest by yourself for nine hours a day doing your yeah, practice. Yeah, you read the descriptions in the 1970s mm. of the six-hour classes. Mm. You're like, oh, yeah. I would have died. Yeah. But well, I suppose is, by the time you get there, you wouldn't die because you would have worked up to it. You work your way up to it. But still, six-hour classes yeah. would have been Yeah, it doesn't leave crushing. much time for anything else. And uh, And so, you know... We have a practice, we have our breakfast, we get on with the day and it just becomes part of, um, it's like any routine that you would have in the morning. You just go through your practice. Some people practice in the evening, depends on what their schedule allows for, but it is designed to be a morning practice. When you wake up in the morning, you will feel where your body is failing you, whether it's a stiffness or a soreness or a weakness or whatever, far more than you will at the end of the day when you've had all that incidental stretching through movement. Oh, I need to put my socks on. That's a forward bend. You're already impacting uh, enough that you feel a lot looser in the evening, which of course for some people is very exciting because they think, well, I'm much more open. And they are in some ways, but they're not getting an absolute indication of where their body is. So clearing away those cobwebs first thing in the morning also uh, allows you to set a really nice tone for the day you know you, you you can appreciate it and enjoy it for the entire day versus doing a really great practice and going straight to sleep where you yeah. you know you don't get the benefit of feeling that you feel great all day end of day practices are interesting because you know you bend here mm. and you'll get something that you've been stuck on for a month mm. and go ha but you know it's only because of all the incidental exercise yeah you know it's because your body was warmer the room's warmer Everything's just warmer. Mm. So all your people out there doing Bikram, you know, remember that room is doing the warming for you. Right. It's it's making up for all those hours. Yeah. Whereas the premise behind Ashtanga is you've got to generate your own heat. Mm. Mm. So, you know, Surya Namaskar A, Surya Namaskar B, at the beginning of it you can hardly move on a cold morning. Mm-hmm. But by the end of, you know, those eight postures, suddenly you're becoming bendy enough yeah. to do the next thing and then right. a little bit bendier and then a little bit bendier. Mm. And then your strength starts to kick in and then mm-hmm. you, your breathing settles and then off you go. Yeah. yeah. So would you say that the Ashtanga, mm. would you say that it's part of a lifestyle? I mean, I, I suppose being a teacher, you would like you would live mm-hmm. effectively the entire lifestyle for yeah. it. Um, well, that was saying, part of our original conversation, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Mm. If I didn't want a lifestyle, I wanted a physical form. Yeah. Mm. You can take as much of it yeah. on as you want to. Uh, it's like anything. I mean, if you let's just make a straight comparison to something like cycling. You can enjoy getting on your bike and getting from A to B, or it can become your entire life and you can shoot for the stars and become an Olympic gold medalist if you want to. Any sk- It's a skill. It's a, a practice. It's a routine. It's something that allows you to find discipline. And you could do it in any form, but the Ashtanga practice has a balance to it that allows the body to the focus of it is to bring the body into alignment Mm. uh, energetically physically mentally emotionally spiritually all those different ways that you can Um, but you can strip back as many layers as you want to and just uh, there are plenty of students who come to us who are just looking for a way to move a structured way to move Uh, some are coming because they like the way it feels Uh, physically at the end of the practice to have worked that way some of them come because they like the way they feel more emotionally settled and more resilient throughout the rest of their life Uh, the onus is on them to to layer in what they need to to get what they can out of it but 
Um, you know, to make another comparison, it's a bit like language. Language in itself can be very, very functional. We're talking right now, we're understanding each other, or it can get off into this sort of esoteric, poetic sort of um, discipline of, of writing. And, and uh, we had an interesting little period there where we were getting into haikus, right? Yes, <laughs> that, that was trippy. You know, so that's, you know, another use of language, but then with different kind of structure to it. And, um, mm. and this, at the very, very base level, gives you a way to connect to your body and in turn there are mental health benefits that come mm. from that and so, i'd say that's one of the things where you know i train alone because getting to the shallow every day is just too hard mm. so i've become very self-contained mm. whereas i would have to imagine for most people the thing of moving in unison breathing in unison mm-hmm. that reinforcement of the connection to the collective probably helps a lot of people get through the day where they really don't want to practice absolutely yeah, and they look forward to being in the group. Yeah, and the classes. I mean, once a classes climb above about twenty people, the energy in the room carries you through the practice. So you feel like you're being. It's, it's a bit like. Um, did you ever jump on a trampoline when you were a kid and you hit the the trampoline at exactly the same time as your friend, both jumping, and you both go up way higher than yeah. you expected? That's what it feels like when there's that yeah. many people in the room. That's what it feels like. But if you're able to create that for yourself, which David is so good at doing because he is so disciplined, then there is no reliance on anyone else for that. And the the weekly classes that we have together are check-in. So it will be, okay, so what have you been feeling that's different this week? Okay, this is moving, this is not, this is sore. I don't know what's going on right here. Let's look at that. And so then we, we look at it. We keep checking in and saying, okay, where is it progressing from here? What other research postures could we put in there? Is it time to go on? Do we stay back a little bit? You asked before, and I don't know if I got to the answer, um, about the the series and the way it's set up. It's set up the way you would teach anything to a child in that if you're teaching a child the ABCs, for instance, and you give them on day one A, B, C, and they say, they get, they get that, they get A, B, C, and on the next day you do uh, D, E, F, and they go D, F, E, and they just can't get past that, then you know the third day you're going to have to do D, E, F again. Until you get that string through, they can remember it on their own, maybe they can write it on their own, at least they can say it on their own, and they're confident with that, you don't continue on. If they have trouble creating the word with their mouth, it's the same as we can either uh, be stopped in the practice because we can't remember what comes next. And there's a lot of postures. There are a lot of postures or because you uh, you can't do what comes next. But those are really the only two reasons why you ever get stopped in something. Yeah. And I've I've been well and truly stuck for a very long time. Yeah. Yes. He's stuck at a posture that is a very challenging twist. And interestingly, each each of us comes to the practice with different strengths and weaknesses. David's been able to get through a good part of the practice because his body has adapted extremely well to some specific movements. And then we finally got to a we posture where he was like, uh, okay, now I don't know what's going on here. Uh, because and it takes time and you can be you can be stuck on postures for years yeah years and to explain this to the listeners when i had just a little bit of sight the primary school for the blind had the brilliant idea that i should stay in the sighted world and use massive magnification so imagine you're sitting at a kitchen table now lean forward Mm. and put your nose about five centimeters off the table Mm. now imagine that's how you read from age five to 17 for hours everything yeah so my upper back and the bottom of my neck I assume are probably just this big chunk of inflexible you know, damaged <laughs> tissue, mm-hmm. which we are gradually at the moment. I, I have this wonderful idea of the fascia fairy. Yes. 
sneaking in and chipping yeah, away. The fascia fairy goes in with a nice little pair of gold scissors, occasionally a chisel, and if she's really pissed off, spiked heels on a pair of boots. <laughs> Depending on my pain level and how much fascia yeah. is being torn. Yeah. If you don't know what fascia is, go and look it up. It's mm. essentially just the connective tissue yeah. that acts like a cargo net over our muscles. Mm. And I would be fascinated to see what it's like in my upper back because mm-hmm. my feeling is from surviving all those years of holding my back in an unnatural posture probably pretty horrible mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i always remember it would have been about a year into you know practicing and I had lunch one day with one of my former students who's tiny and she came up to give me a hug and she goes you're so much taller <laughs> i go really because <laughs> it happens gradually you don't really yeah. notice but yeah. everyone said the same thing yeah again you start taking that that bend out yeah yeah, and all right, I've always got a, a little bit of a posture thing going on from using the cane. Mm. I'm always bringing the right shoulder forward. But we all know how much fun it was watching my right shoulder discover it has mm. to be more mobile. Mm. And also your legs. It was always, always yeah, the big one with the legs and the feet. It, yeah. there's, there's a tendency for, or there was a tendency anyway, yeah. when David started, when I started working with him, we noticed that his feet had quite a bit of turnout to them. And we reasoned that that was probably... Partly because of where his weight was sitting when he was walking, it was a slightly slightly defensive stance in walking, yeah. so that if you if he did walk into something, he could pull back from and it quite fall easily, away from fall it away from fall it. into it. Yeah. And over the last few years, that that has corrected back to center, and now his toes not only face forward, but his gait has gotten longer. Yeah. So I remember the day I came in and you said that the amount of steps that it had taken to get from one place to another had decreased because your gait had gotten longer. Yeah, and you suddenly found yourself further than you thought you'd been with the same count. Yeah, I'm going to have to remap because yeah. suddenly things that were 50 steps are now down to 48. Yeah. That's most people though. And I suppose listeners could try this out for themselves. If they lie directly flat uh, and allow their feet to, or basically their legs to relax, most mm-hmm. people will find that their feet fall out to the side. They will fall yeah. out. Because yep. their inductors are effectively not as tight as their abductors, or yep. rather the inside of their thigh mm. is quite loose and the yep. outside is quite tight. Yes, we have a tendency with the legs to lean, but you'll notice as you look at people that some people tend to ju- not just, uh, that doesn't just happen in a prone position, that happens when they're actually walking. Mm-hmm. So you too. see it on the wear of their shoes mm-hmm. as well. You can really see they're kind of paddling through the sides of their feet. So they lose all the power that comes from the base of the big toe which is such a great like pusher. i didn't even know i had a big toe yeah <laughs> that was one of the greatest what yeah. i have this thing called and it was really sad when i had to chuck out nice shoes mm. because they'd been worn to the pattern mm-hmm. of the feet turning out mm-hmm. to get the weight backwards so once i got the weight forward it's like these shoes feel really weird yeah. put a new pair of shoes on oh mm. so it's like going bye bye nice yeah. pair of it's shoes a shame to let them go but they're pulling you back they're just into causing problems yeah yeah, yeah. So that's, again, sighted people, you probably wander around the world and you just look at shit and be entertained. Mm. I don't look at shit and I'm not entertained. Mm. <laughs> I'm normally in my own head doing something weird. Mm. So actually giving myself something practical to think about like, hey, I'm using my big toe. I'm right. This is different. Yeah. I'm pushing off. This has improved my balance. Mm. And that's the other thing. Yeah, there's some, some postures that are you know, balance on one foot postures, which are hilarious mm-hmm. being blind. Mm-hmm. Because you realize that a huge part of balance is seeing something and using it to compare your balance to. Yeah. yeah. Since mm. working with David, I've used that in a, a few of my classes, my group classes. I've had people, in fact, I've had two classes over the last few years where I've had everyone do the entire practice with their eyes closed. And it's fascinating. And of course, people sneak their eyes open every now and then because they get a little nervous. But 
to have the experience of taking away that uh, main sense that helps us with balance, they realize how bad the balance actually can be, how difficult the balance can be, and how differently they use the muscles when they start to have to feel them more mm. rather than just look out beyond them to the horizon line. And I reckon actually feeling with balance is actually a huge problem because mm. looking sorts at feeling you go well which one do i want to feel Mm -hmm. how am i going to balance every sensation in my left hip Mm -hmm. when i'm balancing on my left leg with my right leg out at some weird angle with my head turned the other way Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you and you realize that the force of gravity is not as obvious when your eyes are closed no you you can be leaning off center and not realize it uh we do a fun little exercise as well sometimes just to kind of prove the point that people will move is uh i'll get people to close their eyes and march just march in place off the mat because if you if you use your mat then you can feel when you've exited the mat but people end up you know halfway across the room facing in a completely different direction <laughs> and they think they're exactly where they started so once they open their eyes and everyone's that the room is in disarray you realize ah okay so we're really using this site for more than what we realized so it sounds as if david's actually had a reasonable impact on the way that Mm. you've uh, continued to teach your practice yes absolutely and and not just there um when i was doing my uh, honors year in psychology we were looking for a thesis idea and because i had had to develop certain competencies to be able to work with david in the capacity of yoga that then sprung this idea of let me look at the research and see if there's anyone who's looked at the competencies necessary for psychologists working with persons with visual impairment. And sure enough, there was absolutely nothing there. So it's a great thesis topic for an honest thesis. Yeah. It really meant you were cutting edge rather than just in the pack, mm, which mm. most honest theses sadly mm. are. And it was great. It was great to 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 have the opportunity to to put that together. And we're we're almost, I think, at the point now. In the hands of the editors but we'll see if we're getting that soon published so that's a nice opportunity to sort of see where that goes and that's what's so interesting because i I very quickly realized out of studying ashtanga eventually i want to write a book Mm. on as much as is safe for someone to do with a book without a teacher Mm -hmm. you know because there isn't a good book that explains it as well as young blood does or with the extra words i've added in to make it make Mm. sense to myself Mm. that as long as someone is fairly literate and can run with a description Mm -hmm. I think you know we've got it to a level of clarity that's far clearer. Mm-hmm. I'm always astounded when I you know put something on on YouTube of some Ashtanga teacher and go, I couldn't follow that by mm-hmm. listening. There's no information. Mm-hmm. They're leaving people in the visual, even though each posture you should be looking where you're meant to look, mm-hmm. not looking at the teacher for the next clue. Mm-hmm. So you you just realise the visual is so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's such a big thing. And I've had to understand, and this is mostly through asking questions, even just a few weeks ago we were talking about this, I needed to understand how David was remembering the practice. So how are you Do you have? Are you creating a mental map for yourself? And we, we talk about it not just in relation to the practice, but in the room and the world, and what, is there a map? Because I'm trying to imagine what would happen if I basically, if I just close my eyes, and that's not the same thing because I've got a visual representation I'm carrying with me then internally. Whereas what David described, which was so fascinating to me, was this idea of a shadow that was just a little bit wider, a little bit bigger than he was, and he was stepping or moving into that shape of the shadow Mm. and that that held the space, which means in some ways that that space is always there being held and it's just a matter of him is it time now to step into this shape or into this shape or into well, this shape? Well, the point shape? is the shadow, you know, it actually moves. Mm. So I literally have to stay in it the whole way through each you got to follow it. Yeah. So, yeah. And again, I have no idea where the black box of my brain found that. Mm. You know, I can describe the sequence to somebody, but if I really want to get the nuances, suddenly this version of me that, you know, is a shadow and marginally bigger 
is just bigger than me and envelops mm. me. All I have to do is stay inside it. Yeah. And I don't know where and how my brain found that solution. Mm. So that's why sometimes it would be nice to understand what comes about of our brains, but that I think came from somewhere so unconscious, mm-hmm. so deep and practical. I, I could invent a reason why it exists. Mm. But it's nice to just admit sometimes, brain, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just came up with it. Yeah, don't know why, but yeah. I'm really glad it did it. Yeah. I think one of the things I've enjoyed so much about uh, working with David is that I it forces me to keep coming up with analogies that are not just visual analogies. I've got to be able to come up with the way something feels and uh, also listen because when when we're moving together, the posture that he's stuck on right now, when we're working on that together, we are communicating through breath. So we're not and speaking. I'm wheezing. And he's wheezing. <laughs> but but at the beginning, it's there's a deep inhale, a deep exhale to find our rhythm together. Yeah. Because if I yank him into a position, it's, wrong spot. it's not going to work. Whereas yeah. if we breathe and move into that position together, we get a little closer and a little closer. And yeah, to indicate how dexterous young blood is, it essentially takes two hands and a foot to get me into this mm-hmm. posture. Yeah, I'm kind of wrapped around him <laughs> like an anaconda. Yeah, and yeah. that's the only thing at the moment that gets me anywhere near yeah. the posture. Yeah. Somehow I have to get there without help. Yeah. He'll what a crazy there. idea. It is such a challenging. This this little sequence that he's working on now, it has four parts. There's an A through D. And it's C. C is C the is challenge. C is killing me. And if we go straight to there's no point in going to D if you, no. if you don't have C because you need C to get to D. Um, physically, you just can't do them because it adds an extra, well, it adds an extra, literally an extra foot in there, which pulls you away from the posture even further. But by going as um, systematically as we have been, trying little things, getting up on a block, sitting forward, doing what we call research postures that sit in between or just prior to the posture. We're just, we're chipping away at it. Yep, the fascia fairy is busy yes. and one day should we finish their job. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Tim, we've talked lots. I would like to get Youngblood in again because I would like to question him along something that's probably a little bit complicated. So I assume I'm, I'm hopefully making the right assumption mm. that you, you you living the lifestyle of Ashtanga means that you kind of have like the, the maybe more of the spiritual side of it as opposed to David kind of trying to adopt the physical discipline, right? Possibly so. I think I don't think I'm all the way in the extreme with it. I have friends who are... are um, They've, they've done the string ceremony. I mean, they've kind of worked the way through towards the kind of brahmachari lifestyle that is the absolute... Uh, like, this practice was originally developed for young boys who were learning to grow up into becoming strong young men. Um, so I would say I sit somewhere in the middle. I, I have yoga friends who still think it's weird that I like watching TV. You know, so that they say, but shouldn't you be meditating or shouldn't you be this or that? I think I have a fairly balanced, if we want to call it a lifestyle, a fairly balanced lifestyle of the practice and I don't know what you could call it, regular life. Mm, you know, yeah, sure. so I'm up early and I'm teaching and my life really revolves around my teaching, my practice and, um, you know, whatever I'm doing sort of socially. I don't go out a lot. There are said to be several enemies of yoga. One of them is uh, going out and being in large crowds, speaking poorly of others, all the sorts of things that you could sort of imagine are negative things. So there are certain elements that I've taken on or probably already were doing, but just crystallized those as my understanding developed further. And I don't drink and I'm vegan and things like that. But those have all just sort of come along. It's not like I found a blueprint for what it yeah, means to be a yogi. You did because you wanted to. It's, okay. it's a choice. It's a personal choice. Yeah. yeah. 
And there are plenty of us out there who okay. go further one way or another. So I don't think I could be held up as being an, an exemplar of being all the way in one direction. I do think I sit somewhere in the middle. I guess what I think is interesting about that, though, is as someone who's a teacher, is that you're effectively teaching one part of something that is designed to be as a, a life yes. size. Yes, yes, that's yes. a huge set of questions. Yes, yes yeah. it is. It's that is a, a big thing there. The, the Ashta, you asked earlier if you were pronouncing it correctly. Mm. Ash, Ashtanga comes Ashtanga. from two words. Ashta or Ashtao mm. means eight. It's just the number eight. Mm. And Anga means limbs. Right. As in like arms and legs, limbs. Wow. Yeah. So Ashtanga is the eight limb system. Now, interestingly, other systems of yoga, Iyengar, for instance, is named after the person. Mm. Bikram is named after the person. Ashtanga Technically, I, I've always believed should be called the Joyce system, the Patabi Joyce system, because that's the system, or this is the person who it's uh, ascribed to being the creator of it, which is sort of a roundabout way of, of uh, saying that he was the initiator of it. It was he and his teacher who actually created the, the practice together. But he, for whatever reason, decided to call it Ashtanga Yoga. It's like saying an apple, like a Macintosh, an apple, and then everything else is a PC. Yep. You know, PC okay. doesn't tell you what brand it is. It doesn't tell mm. you what happens to it. It doesn't tell you how much it costs or, or how it runs. It's just sort of a generic description. And Ashtanga is a system that runs all the way through from the yamas and the niyamas, which are the sort of moral codes and the disciplines that come mm. before the practice. The asana, which is the, the, the physical practice that now everyone calls yoga. Mm. What we're doing is an asana practice, which sits within the belly of the full eight limbs. It's the third limb. That moves on to pranayama, pratyahara. We go on and on and on all the way up to samadhi. So we're, we're working our way through. Some people will just isolate the asana and call that yoga and that's what the west seems to have done mm. and that's what it is and maybe there's a bit of pranayama thrown in there as well the breathing techniques and stuff like that but the whole system is designed to be taken as uh, like a ladder you're working your way through and the belief is that how can we possibly engage that higher level if we haven't taken care of the base levels mm. so cleanliness non-stealing correct use of energy non-hoarding all of the you know non-harm which is where the vegetarianism often comes from um, all those things sit even in the yamas and the niyamas before you even get to the asana and asana means seat it doesn't mean it's used to mean posture as well but it actually is more about the idea of being able to sit comfortably to sit comfortably in yourself if you want to say it more than just on a physical level to then be able to do the breathing techniques to then do the concentration to then find potentially a state of meditation when you've withdrawn your senses from everything to eventually reach the point of oneness which is the samadhi that blissful state which is not evaporate into a you know a ball of light but rather just that you um you found your center you, you know you feel that connection between yourself and everything around you the non-duality but you can feel a lot of that because we live in the physical plane. You can feel a lot of that within the third limb. Mm. Yeah, there's an awful lot of potential in the practice for the centeredness, for mm. the calmness, mm. for clarity. Mm. And particularly if, and I think this is what happens, if you've resolved a lot of the other issues, you only pick up the ones you haven't resolved. Mm. So for me, the most obvious one I hadn't resolved was a physical one. Mm. I wanted a physical form. I'd sorted my ethical decisions, I'd mm -hmm. sorted my worldview, I'd sorted my idea of what equanimity was like. Mm. Now, the practice can help with all those things, which is even better than it just being physical. Mm. Some people are going to be looking for whole answers. Mm -hmm. Other people are going to be looking for things that are complementary yeah. with the answers they already have. Absolutely. And the fantastic thing with it is 
you can make use of as much as you need mm. to either finish off what you've started or do something completely new mm-hmm. and you know pick between the two you know, as and when you're willing to do the work and learn and evolve yeah mm. yeah you mm. take you take what of it what uh, you yeah. want and you don't you're not for it's none of it's ever forced yeah mm. none of it's ever you have to go to this there's an encouragement to explore that if you would like to it's made available but it's always going to be your choice if you mm. take that on See, it's even the wonderful thing about the chance is the chants are about being that ethical, considerate person mm. and saying thank you for knowledge. Mm. They don't have an overt spiritual angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're there to remind you, you didn't do this on your own. Be grateful to people who made this possible mm-hmm. and treat each other well. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty good chant to remind yourself every morning of how to be in the world. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'd actually like to talk about that uh, a little further, which means maybe we can do it another stage. But sure. it's been awesome to have you on. Awesome. Yeah, great to be here. A privilege, yeah, to have you on Young Blood. And thank you, David. Hey, thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, David. Hello, listeners. You didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music, did you? I'm here today to say we now have merchandise. You can have a Blind Insights t shirt, you can have a Blind Insights pin. You can have a Blind Insights hoodie. You can have a Blind Insights coffee cup. All you need to do is go to Auscast, auscast-network.myshopify.com and click on Blind Insights and you can see all our products. Thank you very much to the Auscast Network for their support and making this happen. <laughs>